on the 9th of June 1865, sitting comfortably on his train home from Paris, Charles Dickens had a brush with death. Workmen on a bridge had failed to signal that a section of the track was missing. Several of the carriages plunged into the river below, with Dickens' own carriage left teetering at the top. The next year, Dickens would publish his most haunting ghost story, The Signalman. In this podcast, Claire Ashworth of the Universities of Loughborough and Lincoln shows how this inspired tale is a representation of repressed trauma that both looks back to Dickens' own experiences but also anticipates the work of later psychological theorists. This podcast is brought to you by the Department of English Studies at Durham University. It was recorded at our series of public late summer lectures in 2019. The concept of time is an important thematic device which Dickens employed in many of his novels, often presenting it as a fluid, circular concept that was ahead of its era in many respects. In A Christmas Carol, for example, the narrative begins in the present tense, but then follows a strange, linear-defying structure as Scrooge visits places in the past, alternate present, alternate future, and back to the present. This strange temporality is augmented by the fact that once Scrooge is restored to his own time and place, his terrifying visions of the future become memories of a future that did not and will not happen since he becomes a reformed man. By changing his ways and becoming a better person, Scrooge does not die in the way he foresaw and is thus able to avoid his fate. In two of Dickens' later novels, David Copperfield and Great Expectations, time is also a dominant theme. The past is viewed retrospectively as an adult's perception of childhood, and yet this same past repeatedly encroaches on the present and ultimately the future. For instance, David Copperfield's memories of his childhood and early marriage resurface at several key stages in the novel, whereas Pip is continually haunted by his recollections of Magwitch the convict. In effect, each protagonist's memory becomes a predictive relation of future events, and the past essentially becomes the future. This idea of future memory is a concept which fascinated not only Dickens, but many of his contemporaries, including George Eliot, The Lifted Veil, and Wilkie Collins, The Woman in White. In The Lifted Veil, for instance, the protagonist, Latimer, also foresees his own death, but unlike Scrooge, he is powerless to prevent it, possibly because he does not undergo the same type of character reformation. Dickens takes this concept to another level in his most intellectually complex ghost story, The Signalman in which he explores the effects of shock on the mind and the the ability of the past to encroach on the present and subsequent future, an exploration which anticipated Freud's trauma theory in many respects. The Signalman is one of the finest examples of a ghost story, and in its narrowest sense, a ghost story is a series of supernatural events which cannot be easily explained and often includes the spiritual return of the dead. J.A. Cudden defines it as prose narrative of variable length, typically between 1,000 and 25,000 words, in which the spirit of a person or the spirits of persons, no longer bound by natural laws, manifests itself or seems to do so, either embodied in some form or disembodied, and haunts a place, person or thing as a kind of presence. 
Perhaps the most characteristic form taken by the Victorian Gothic period was the ghost story. And although such tales can have several meanings or interpretations, they all possess one similarity, which is the challenge to rational order and the observed laws of nature. Dickens wrote several ghost stories during his career, the majority of which appear in his Christmas writings and the inset tales of the Pickwick Papers and Nicholas Nickleby. Each of these stories emphasises anachronism and unwelcome vestiges from the past, and according to David Parisian, they are largely responsible for Dickens' image as a Gothic writer. Whilst this is true, it should also be noted that Dickens was writing at a time when ghost stories were extremely popular, and so-called ghost-seeing was prevalent amongst the Victorian public. This was largely due to the fact that ghost stories not only featured as a popular form of entertainment, they were also included in medical journals which published subjective, real-life accounts of ghost-seeing as subjects of philosophical debate and scientific investigation. As a result, apparitions or spectral illusions, as they were commonly known, were often discussed in medical circles, especially in relation to involuntary functions of the mind, including dreaming, Synambulism, reverie, hallucination, and mental derangement. However, this had not always been the case. Before the 19th century, the mind, and memory in particular, had been viewed positively as a faculty which strengthened an individual's identity and contributed to defining a sense of self. But by the 1830s, this viewpoint had begun to change with the emergence of mesmerism or animal magnetism first brought to England by Austrian physician Franz Anton Mesmer. Its popularity grew steadily, and as more practitioners emerged, public performances were given to audiences across the social spectrum. Due to its controversial and potentially supernatural status, mesmerism provided a fascinating source of inspiration for many Victorian authors, including George Eliot, Wilkie Collins, Rhoda Broughton and Dickens. From a literary perspective, mesmerism was an attractive prospect because it claimed to endow its subject with prevision and mind-reading abilities. George Eliot drew on this particular psychological aspect in The Lifted Veil, in which she made a connection between mesmerism and clairvoyance. Her narrator, Latimer, can see into the minds of others and into the future, including his own death. He is continually haunted by this future memory. And because he is unable to change his prevision, he eventually dies in the same way he foresaw. Dickens had also written about a similar type of prevision several years earlier in A Christmas Carol, when Scrooge also witnesses his future death. However, unlike Latimer, Scrooge is offered the chance of redemption via memory, which is depicted as a source of salvation. In this paper, I will analyse the signalman and claims that its supernatural aspects and its ghost may be read literally or as psychological representations of memory, which were informed by Dickens's knowledge and understanding of Victorian mental sciences and pseudosciences, including associative memory, mesmerism and ghosting. The signalman first appeared in the 1866 Christmas number of All the Year Round, which Dickens edited from 1859 until his death in 1870. Each year, the Christmas edition would invariably follow a frame tale structure, with a principal narrative and a series of interpolated tales written by various authors, including Dickens occasionally. 
Like Dickens's previous Christmas stories, The Signalman is a hybrid of supernatural tale-telling and scientific investigation, which was part of a collection of railway-themed stories called Mugby Junction. Several critics, including Louise Henson, have recognised its ability to blend several supernatural elements, including ghost-seeing, mesmerism, clairvoyance, spectral illusion, psychic sympathy and notions of suggestion or expectation. Dickens presents each of these perspectives in a supernatural context and by doing so explores the mind's ability to create alternate realities. Jill Matus has also suggested that the signalman is a psychological exploration, but she has argued that it is not simply generic Rather, it is Dickens's personal response to a railway accident near Staplehurst, Kent, in which he nearly died. Dickens's personal letters suggest that he was at least severely affected by the railway accident. He lost his voice for almost two weeks, and he developed repeated nervous shakes which, repeat, which severely affected him. In a letter to Thomas Mitten, written shortly after the accident, Dickens described how he was a little shaken by the tragedy and explained how the shake had affected his ability to write. In addition, Dickens developed an understandable fear of travelling by train, which remained with him until his death, exactly five years to the date after the accident. Today, Dickens's symptoms would probably be recognised as the effects of post-traumatic stress, but it was not until the publication of Freud's Beyond the Pleasure Principle in 1920 that trauma would be recognised as a psychological condition and given a proper medical term. Nevertheless, Dickens's ghost stories suggest that he clearly understood the implications of distress and its ability to manifest itself both physically and psychologically. Indeed, in a letter to Elizabeth Gaskell, written on the 25th of November 1851, Dickens confessed that he considered ghost stories to be illustrative of particular states of mind and processes of the imagination. This belief is perhaps most effectively demonstrated in The Signalman. The mental strain on Dickens's Signalman, and indeed on most mid-Victorian Signalmen, must have been overwhelming, not least because they stood at the fulcrum of a profound transformation in space and time. This accolade came with great responsibility, and signalmen had the demanding tasks of maintaining the line and its signals, both of which were essential to reliability and safety. However, signalmen were poorly paid and they worked long hours. They also worked alone, which no doubt contributed to a low sense of morale. This is especially true for Dickens's signalmen, whose only communication with the outside world is via telegraph and the ring of an electric bell. His isolated working environment and the fact that he is never referred to by name renders him an industrial automaton, which lends ambiguity to the tale whilst also creating a dehumanising effect. This is exacerbated by the psychological demands of his working responsibilities but Dickens's signalman has the additional mental strain of unwanted memories, which repeatedly encroach on the present. Like Redlaw in Dickens's earlier Christmas tale, The Haunted Man and the Ghost's Bargain, he is haunted by distressful recollections 
and becomes paranoid in the midst of his haunting, fearful of the bell, fearful of the tunnel, fearful of the innocent passerby. The innocent passerby is Jackson, the rationally-minded narrator, and a gentleman with a newly awakened interest in the railways. He describes himself as a man who has been shut up within narrow limits all his life, but has recently been set free. He is therefore keen to meet the signalman and shouts hello below there when he first sees him. But whilst this address seems perfectly natural to Jackson, the signalman's response is irrational. Instead of answering Jackson, the signalman looks down the line rather than up at the cutting. And when Jackson asks to be shown the way down, the signalman does not respond. Jackson considers this behaviour remarkable but when the signalman reluctantly points out the path, he nevertheless descends the extremely deep and unusually precipitate cutting. As Jackson descends further, the cutting walls become oozier and wetter, which implies that he is about to enter an unpleasant and potentially foreboding environment. Also, the fact that he is going below ground level suggests that he is crossing some kind of threshold, whether this be physical, supernatural or psychological. For instance, if Jackson's descent is interpreted from a supernatural perspective, he could be about to enter a ghostly underworld or perhaps even hell. However, from a psychological perspective, his descent below ground could be interpreted as a journey into the depths of the unconscious mind. This suggestion is more convincing if, as I've argued, the ghost story merely veils an exploration of scientific ideas about memory and the unconscious. At the bottom of the railway cutting, Jackson notices the tunnel entrance for the first time, which has a barbarous, depressing and forbidding air about it. At the same time, he becomes conscious of an earthy, deadly smell, and the wind is so cold he feels as though he has left the natural world. This, coupled with the signalman's fixed eyes and reluctance to speak, gives Jackson the monstrous thought that he is a spirit, not a man. He soon dismisses the idea as nonsense, but ironically, he blames the signalman for his misinterpretation rather than himself. Quote, I have speculated since whether there may have been infection in his mind. Jackson's misconception is a classic case of ghost seeing, but this initial impression is important because the signalman also mistakes Jackson for a spectre at first sight. Quote, I was doubtful whether I had seen you before. These perceptual errors clearly demonstrate how easily a person may be mistaken for a ghost under the right circumstances. In Jackson's case, the eerie environment and the signalman's strange behaviour have affected his rational thinking. And in this state of mind, he briefly thinks he sees a ghost. Likewise, the signal's man has undoubtedly been affected by solitude and the dark, gloomy location in which he works. Therefore, it is not surprising that he mistakes Jackson for the spectre which haunts him, especially as Jackson's initial words and gestures exactly mirror the ghosts. However, when the signalman realises his mistake, he finds a brief respite from loneliness and a welcome source of companionship in Jackson. This prompts him to admit that he is haunted by a figure which stands beneath the danger light, warning of disaster. 
He cannot see the ghost's face because it waves its arm before its eyes in the same way that Jackson shields his eyes from an angry sunset at the start of the tale. In addition, the ghost's warning of hello below there exactly parallels Jackson's first words and the words of the engine driver at the end of the tale. As a result of these coincidences, the tale's conclusion mirrors its beginning and each of the characters are linked by a series of overlapping occurrences and repeated occurrences and expressions in a history that seems to have begun before the narration begins and will continue after it ends. This type of repetition is cyclic and can be compared to the cyclic repetition of unbidden memory as manifested by the ghosts that haunt Scrooge, Redlaw and the Signalman. In each case, unassimilated, distressful memories are personified by spectres which impose themselves on the present, but at the same time, ghostly premonitions of the future become a remembered past. Dickens's implication is that the past, present and future cannot be compartmentalised because each has a bearing on the other. The characters in The Signalman are therefore connected by the fluid, cyclic motion of time and memory, which will, like the wheels of a train, continue to turn. The characters are also linked in their use of the ghost's words, and each time these words are repeated, they assume a more sinister meaning. However, whilst Jackson may be aware of this coincidence, he remains incredulous of the spectre's reality until the very end. The signalman, on the other hand, believes that there is no serious question of fact and admits that his mind is troubled by the ghost which rings the little bell in his signal box. The ghost use of the bell is understandable given the contemporary fashion for spiritualism in which spirits were purported to ring bells, amongst other objects, as a means of communication with the living. However, Dickens was an outspoken sceptic of spiritualism and was therefore likely being ironic in his use of the bell. Nevertheless, he uses the idea to suit his own purposes and to create a supernatural effect. The electric bell was particularly important in early railway communication, since it often signalled disaster on the line. Therefore, it is not surprising that the signalman fears it. But as if this were not enough, the bell also signals the appearance of the ghost. This coincidence has potentially disastrous implications, but as though to reassure himself and Jackson, the signalman claims that he has never confused the spectre's ring with the man's. The ghost's ring is a strange vibration in the bell that it derives from nothing else. Again, Dickens is making a playful allusion to spiritualism here, but the electric bell is ghostly for another reason since it enables the outside world to communicate with the signalman in a remote effect. In effect, the bell is a medium which allows virtual communication with an unseen, unheard person, much like a ghost. By responding to the bell, the signalman becomes a ghostly correspondent in an eerie environment. This circumstance is complicated by the fact that he believes in the ghost, and by answering the bell, he is therefore communicating with two spectral bodies, an actual, albeit absent person, and the phantom itself. 
This ghostly situation is amplified because the signals man is haunted by several fears and preoccupations, including the pressure of his, of his responsibility and past tragedy on the line. There have been two recent train accidents on the signalman's line, and both have been preceded by the appearance of the ghost. Therefore, the signalman is understandably distressed by its latest appearance, since it warns of an unknown future danger that he is powerless to prevent. The signalman describes the ghost reappearance as a cruel haunting, because, like Redlaw, he knows something that he does not know. For Redlaw, this something is forgotten memory, but the signalman's situation is much more complex. He is not only haunted by the memory of past tragedy, he is also haunted by a future tragedy that is yet to occur. Unlike George Eliot's Latimer or Scrooge, however, the signalman does not experience a prevision of his death, and therefore he does not understand the ghost's warning. Nevertheless, he is still haunted by it in the same way that Scrooge and Latimer are haunted by future memories. The signalman is both mentally and physically affected by these memories in the same way that Dickens was affected by the Staplehurst railway accident in which he nearly died. In telling his story to Jackson, the signalman relives past distress in the same way that Dickens relived the train crash each time he told people about it. These relived memories inevitably lead to a fear of the future, as exemplified by the signalman's dread of the ghost and Dickens's anxiety when travelling by train. When the signalman tells Jackson about the tragedies, he returns to the unprocessed and terrible knowledge of these distressful events. However, unlike Scrooge and Redlaw, he does not assimilate this past distress despite being given the opportunity via Jackson. In a way, Dickens preempts Freud's talking cure here, since, like a modern-day psychologist, Jackson is the rational listener who is ready to provide reassurance and a logical explanation for seemingly inexplicable events. I showed him how that this figure must be a deception of his sense of sight, and how that figures originating in diseases of the delicate nerves that minister to the functions of the eye were known to have troubled patients, some of whom had become conscious of the nature of their affliction and had even proved it by experiments upon themselves. Jackson offers a scientific explanation for ghost seeing based on Victorian psychological theory and medical case studies. But his justification is also a Gothic convention which provides a false sense of security for the reader. In dismissing the signalman's claims and his belief in the ghost, Jackson makes the same common-sense objections to the supernatural that a reader might. He tries to convince the signalman that the ghost's cry is nothing more than the wild harp of the wind on the telegraph wires, but he fails to reason him out of his conviction. As a result, Dickens implies that the signalman's belief in the phantom is harmful, and in doing so, he echoes the warning of pre-eminent physician Henry Holland, who described ghost-seeing as a link in the chain betwixt sound reason and madness. However, whilst Dickens agrees with Holland's theory, 
He also preempts Freud by suggesting that unless ghosts are laid to rest and distressful memories are assimilated, the consequences will be unfavourable to say the least. This is demonstrated by the signalman's relentless mental torture and by his untimely death at the end of the narrative. Gilles Matus has also observed pre-Freudian theory in Dickens's writing and has suggested that because Dickens was sympathetic to the possibility of unconscious knowledge and because he was adept at manipulating the literary possibilities within the genre of the ghost story, he is able to articulate more about the relation of trauma and memory than was available to him in the current discourse on nervous shock. In so doing, he powerfully anticipates the formulations of Freud and later trauma theory. In the same way that Dickens uses aspects of spiritualism and mesmerism to suit his own purposes, he successfully incorporates his understanding of Victorian psychology to highlight the effects of distress on the mind. Dickens's signalman is a complex, multifaceted self. He thinks and acts in the present during the discharge of his duties and his conversations with Jackson, but his mind is also haunted by the past and the future. He exists in all these dimensions simultaneously, much like Scrooge, who declares that he will live in the past, the present and the future after his interaction with the spirits. In both these ghost stories, Dickens implies that human beings do not and cannot live solely in the present. They are influenced by the past, which not only has a bearing on the present, it also has a potential impact on the future. In addition, Dickens infers that premonitions of the future such as the prevision of one's own death, will not only influence the present, they will eventually become a remembered past for the seer. This type of cyclic repetition is demonstrated after Jackson's first meeting with the signalman. As he walks home along the rails, he experiences the very disagreeable sensation of a train approaching behind him. Whilst this is an understandable fear of walking on a busy section of track, it also anticipates the future because just before the signalman is killed, his positioning on the line is exactly the same as Jackson's. Quote, Somehow he was not clear of the outer rail. As the engine came out of the tunnel, his back was towards her and she cut him down. A further example of this type of premonition occurs when the engine driver attempts to warn the signalman of the approaching train, but fails because his words and gestures have already been repeated by Jackson, the ghost, and the signalman himself. As a result, the signalman does not hear or pay any attention to the warning shouts, possibly because he assumes they come from the ghost. Alternatively, it could be that because he has seen a premonition of the future, he is unable to change the present, and, like George Eliot's Latimer, he is powerless to prevent his own death. Interestingly, the signalman's death will eventually become a remembered past for Jackson, who is also trapped within the cyclic repetition of the narrative. Although I have offered a psychological interpretation of the signalman, it ought to be remembered that it is still a ghost story and has always been marketed and regarded as one. It is an especially eerie example of the genre, 
not least because of its inexplicable and ghastly coincidences, which culminate in the signalman's forecasted death. Since Jackson acts as a reader surrogate, his ambiguity towards the supernatural reflects the current discourse on ghost seeing, whilst also highlighting the mysterious nature of the Victorian mind. The themes of cyclic repetition and the fluidity of time and memory are best portrayed by the signalman's mental condition, which clearly preempts a modern-day case of trauma and was ahead of its time. This is especially true since post-traumatic stress would not be recognised as a psychological condition for many years. Nevertheless, Dickens clearly understood the effects of suffering as demonstrated by the signalman's troubled mind and his fear of the future, both of which are embodied by the ghost. The story is, therefore, not merely an anticipation of this psychological condition, it is a ghostly echo of the future, much like the spectre itself. So thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Department of English Studies at Durham University. Now let us hear from you. Search for Read Research English at Durham on social media and discuss the latest research news, events and literary insights with our community of readers, thinkers and writers. Thank you.